This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Help Wanted on Business Radio. Hello, you're listening to Help Wanted on Business Radio, where we talk about difficult work situations and how to deal with them. I'm your host, Jody Foster, and I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry and the assistant dean of professionalism at the Perlman School of Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Pennsylvania Hospital. I'm here with my co-host, Sean Burke, associate general counsel and employment attorney at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Sean. Hey, Jody. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well, and I'm especially excited today uh, because we're going to do something a little bit different from what we normally do on the show. We're often uh, talking on this show about specific workplace interactions, uh, but today we have the opportunity to step back and take a much broader perspective at the role of work in not just our lives now, but actually maybe even the whole course of human history and prehistory. And to do that, we have as our guest, James Sussman who's the author of the new book, Work. Hi. Great. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled to welcome James uh, with his new book, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your work as an anthropologist. Well, I, I, I come from it, come to it from a sort of strange perspective, and this book is actually the, the, the progeny of two very different perspectives. First of all, as you say, I'm a social anthropologist, and I've spent most of my adult life working with a group of people I know as the Zhenhuasi. Um, it's got a click in it. Um, most other people know them as the Bushmen or the San of the Kalahari, who are one of the oldest hunting and gathering peoples around. Um, and I've been documenting their encounter with modernity, much of which actually involves them trying to negotiate the modern world of work, in a sense. Um, the second part of my approach, reason for writing this book, was that somehow I managed to interrupt my period as an anthropologist working with the Zhenhuasi to take on a job as the global head of public affairs and government relations for the De Beers group of company, the Diamond. Um, and I was in charge of setting up all their sustainability and environmental standards and political standards and dealing with issues from community rights and the blood diamond situations and so on. Um, and I left that in 2014 and returned back to working as an anthropologist. Um, and this book really is the progeny of those two very different perspectives on the world of life and the world of work, because hunter-gatherers have a very different approach to organizing their economies and organizing their working lives to the rest of us. So why don't we, why don't we actually start with that? Because that's one of the most interesting things about the book and revelatory things, I think, for many readers and listeners about your work, which is that foraging societies lived a life that uh, in many ways, unknown to us, was quite enviable, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Well, you know, what they did do, I mean, so people don't know, people always accuse me of painting painting sort of hunter-gatherer life as a, something like an Eden. You know, people did lead shorter lives and they did endure some hardships. But the truth is hunter-gatherers had a set of attitudes and way of organizing themselves that meant that they ended up spending considerably greater amounts of leisure time than we do. So for example, the Zhenhuasi 
before they started to lose their land to, again, mainly commercial interests and through government evictions and so on, despite living in a semi-arid desert, so really one of the toughest environments you can imagine, they managed to secure all their basic material needs pretty much on the basis of 15 to 17 hours a week on the food quest. And that's just for economically active adults. So there were elderly people and younger people and also lazy people who did less work. Um, and then another perhaps 15 hours a week per adult doing other domestic related tasks, um, which is pretty much what most of us do on top of our jobs as well. So they enjoyed a tremendous amount more free time than we did. And it was based on a, a very different set of assumptions about economics and very different set of assumptions about what constituted um, a decent life, I suppose. Um, but it does raise some very interesting questions about our own attitudes to work, because often we think certainly classical economics um, informs us that the reason we work as we do is to do with our evolutionary history, to do with the fact that our hunter-gatherers ancestors endured a really tough, endless struggle for survival, and it honed us into focused workers, accumulators, um, makers and endless doers. Um, and the evidence from anthropology and evolutionary history suggests a slightly different story. Yeah, and one of the themes that I think I noticed in the book, which I quite liked, um, is this recurring notion that many people seem to think that their surroundings and the situation that they're in is natural. And it's the way things ought to be. It's the way things are by design. It's not rather the product of sort of contingent changes in history, um, but but what your book does so well by looking at deep history of work is show that in fact, the way that we live now isn't necessarily natural. It isn't governed, it doesn't have to be governed by uh, uh, genetics or some kind of preordained thing. So what are the big points at which those, our attitudes toward work as a species changed in your view? Well, look, I, th I think that being sort of, you know, there have been two great revolutions before the one we're in, in the history of work. And I'm absolutely certain we're in the middle of a quite extraordinary time in the history of work and our economies. The first one was you know, very long ago, and that was really the invention of fire. Um, and that we think possibly happened, you know, a million years ago, more likely half a million years ago. And really by outsourcing their energy needs to fire, um, basically, humans bought themselves an awful lot more free time. They also bought themselves the ability to eat a whole bunch of new different foods, which enabled us to grow really big brains, enabled us to spend time socializing. It enabled, it invented the idea of leisure. But I think the most critical revolution in the history of work, the one that's shaped the way we act and think now, really was the transition to farming. So our hunter-gatherer ancestors, as I said, like the Genoisi, probably took most of their lives pretty easy. They relaxed a great deal. They spent their spare energy and time rather than accumulating surpluses and so on. They worked on art and relaxing and so on. The transition to agriculture fundamentally changed everything, though, because farming requires where hunter-gatherers saw their environments as inherently provident, as generous. Um, farmers tended to see their environments as only potentially provident. They had to invest work into their environments in order to get a return. 
And so that established this strong link between work and reward. As importantly, farming societies became exposed. They were much more productive, but they exposed themselves to a whole range of risks that hunter-gatherer societies hadn't been exposed to. And these risks were to do with really the whole putting your eggs in one basket phenomenon. By basically depending on one or two um, key agricultural products, usually wheat, which was really the dominant thing, certainly in Western European agriculture, you expose yourself to the risk of, you know, really you were one flood, one weevil infestation away from disaster. And the list of risks was huge. Um, and it went on to risks as well that affected the human population, one of which was actually zoonotic diseases. So diseases from animals like influenza, tuberculosis, and strangely enough, COVID. So um, there were all these risks that shaped agricultural societies and it established a really strong link between work and reward. Um, there was another second crucial factor, which was that when you work as a farmer, all your rewards are in the long term. They are future rewards. You're tied to an agricultural cycle where you plant in spring, you maybe harvest in August, you prepare your grains and so on through early September, and then only eventually by Christmas are you going to be able to bake a loaf of bread. Whereas hunter-gatherers focused very much on meeting their immediate economic needs. So pretty much all their work effort and all the work effort of our species really up until the agricultural revolution was very short term. Um, agriculture changed all that. People started living and conceptualizing their work as providing returns only in the distant future. And that was a very fundamental shift. Um, and of course, the biggest shift of all was that by creating and accessing greater amounts of energy, it led to a vast population and um, explosion of population, and we have ended up more or less where we are now. Certainly, I don't think we had have lives anything like we do now if it wasn't for the first experiments in agriculture. And so it's around this time when uh, the agricultural revolution takes place that, as I understand it from reading the book, that the notion of debt arises. Um, and finance arises because farmers are engaged in transactions. Um, they may be getting loans. They may be predicting harvests. And so the, the concept of time shifting and space shifting money arises in connection with this change. And also a change in our attitude toward work where um, the, the, the society's conception that work is something that you must continue to do in order to reap rewards and reduce risks. This is something that emerges right around then. And so uh, are we are we bound into that kind of obsession with a work ethic uh, as a result of having our species gone through that great transition? Well, we're certainly not. We're certainly not bound into it. The funny thing is, we, I, we, you know, we we remain humans are creatures that are quite slow to change. I mean, we we see this with everything. Really, we are relatively um, intransigent when it comes to challenging our norms. I think, for example, of, you know, my grandfather who went to his grave at a ripe old age, I should say, but he, he went to his grave insisting that seatbelts were dangerous in cars and that smoking never harmed anybody. And, um, you know, we, we will often persuade ourselves that um, things are as they always have been, even when it's no longer healthy for us to healthy for us to do so. And what has happened is we've inherited a whole series of economic norms, values, and institutions from the agricultural era. 
which were all based on the genuine need to work hard. So if we think about it 200 years ago, 80% of the population in even Western Europe and you know, the, the early United States yeah. were involved in agriculture. That's four out of five people and children were routinely expected to work. And this is of course why when the industrial revolution began, nobody actually thought twice about children working in factories. Right. But you had four out of five people working in agriculture and a genuine kind of relationship between the energy you got from the farming and the energy that went into your body. Now, 1.4% of Americans, for instance, work in agriculture and they provide so much food that um, roughly um, as much food as each individual eats every year ends up in um, landfill. And of course, obesity is now a far greater problem than far greater problem than hunger. So all these things that made farmers obsessed with scarcity, we don't need to um, worry about anymore. Yet we still organize our economies based on a series of ideas that we inherited from them. Um, and this is why I said earlier that I think, you know, we are in this extraordinary revolution and that what we have gone is we've gone from 10,000 years of real visceral scarcity to now we live in such a hugely productive world that most of our problems seem to come from consuming too much rather than having too little. Yet bizarrely, all our economic institutions from the way we even define economics as the science of scarcity um, are all based on really a whole set of ideas that you know, arose out of very different circumstances. And I think are increasingly unfit for purpose. In case you're just tuning in, this is Help Wanted on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jody Foster, along with my co-host, Sean Burke. And today we're talking with James Sussman, an anthropologist and author of the new book, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. James, can you talk to us a little bit about the current revolution that you've alluded to a couple of times now? Well, I mean, it's a thing I think a lot of us probably have a sense that things are changing. And obviously, in the last year, it's been very interesting for me to see, for example, we've been through this process where, you know, 15 months ago, the idea of working from home or flexible working was viewed as fringe and sort of wild. And now pretty much everybody's actually come to accept it. And I think part of the reason that we're accepting it is because we're aware of these deeper currents that have been affecting our relationship with work. And those currents take many different forms, but the most obvious of them, for example, is the increasing role of automation in our societies. Now, you know, from the very first stirrings of the Industrial Revolution, everybody from Benjamin Franklin and Adam Smith, all the way to more recent commentators have imagined that automation would release us from work. Um, and as we know, we still seem to work as hard as we always, always have. Yet an extraordinary number of jobs are automated. So we're seeing a net decline in good jobs coming onto the market. Um, we're seeing a net decline in jobs that people find meaningful. Um, so there's a great deal of worker dissatisfaction. If you look, for example, at uh, um, you know, the, any sort of large scale surveys of global workforces, you're looking really at about 70 to 80% of the population being disengaged by their jobs. And part of the reason is, is, I think that sort of visceral intimacy, that need has begun to disappear partially as a result of our prosperity, but partially as a result of the cannibalization of the workplace through automation and these great technical powers we've had. And then also partially 
as a result of the fact that I think people have begun to ask questions about work. So one of the reasons that I think people have you know, embraced this experiment of working at home has partially been that they've discovered there are some benefits in it. Um, you know, sort of whether they are able to spend time which they would otherwise have spent commuting with their children, for example. Um, but the key reasons are is that the nature of work and the need for work is changing. And that's a big macroeconomic question. And that's principally a result of automation and technology. So this this calls to mind one of the questions that I had when when reading the book and thinking about the book, uh, especially some of the material at the end where you talk about um, some of uh, the cases of death by overwork for which there's actually now even a diagnosis in, in Japan. Um, and certainly that's not the only country where the phenomenon has occurred. Should we should we be striving to do something to restore work-life balance? That's a phrase that's commonly used here in the US and maybe elsewhere in the world. And if so, uh, is, is a way to do that to try to renew individuals engagement with their work or would it be actually to try to cabin the amount of work that we do so that we can restore leisure do you have an opinion on that um, i do i have well i'm i'm a i i approach things very much like a scientist i'm a believer in experimentation um, i think we always expect people to have answers these days and too many people pretend they do have answers these days whereas i like to have lots of experiments to help us uh, help us through um in terms of work, I think there's some interesting things that we know about the nature of work, and we know about this from our deep history. Um, well, and I think what we can do is organize our working lives a great deal better. Um, so, for example, we are very much born to work. There is a, you know, as one traces our evolutionary history, we are a creature that evolved to acquire skills. We've, you know, we are unique in the animal kingdom in terms of our capacity to acquire a range of different skills. I talk about it as being skilled at acquiring skills, so to speak. Um, we also have acquired a capacity where we need to use those skills. We need to do meaningful work. We feel restless and demotivated and miserable if we don't have something decent to do. And I think in lots of people's jobs, partially because we've removed lots of the interest from them, they end up going home to try and find good work to do. So if you think about it, certainly in Britain over here, we are a nation now ever more of home bakers, gardeners, hikers, fishers, and hunters, all of which are really a form of work. Right. Um, and people are trying to find that satisfaction that they're actually not getting in the workplace. And I certainly think it's a challenge for people who are employers. I, you know, we, we look at, we sort of go through historical things around the efficiency movement, management theory, and so on. Actually, I, I think the real challenge is how to make work interesting for people. Yes. And uh, I think the rewards you gain from that are huge. Right. And so what are some thoughts you have on how to make work more interesting for people? Because I agree with you. Um, the, the concept of work-life balance is not going to deliver very much if people are not engaged with what they're actually being uh, tasked to do and paid to do. Absolutely. Well, one thing I, I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is, again, with the Genoisi, we'll use them as an example, just because it's quite easy to talk about. The Genoisi had so little work to do you know, most days involve two or three hours, but they'd complain if they didn't have that two or three hours. 
They'd also complain, in particular the men, if they couldn't go hunting once in a while. And hunting was far more engaging. Um, my thinking from them is that we need a certain amount of work. But after a while, when we do too much work, it ceases, you know, we know from surveys after surveys that actually our engagement and our energy use has declined. So there's, you know, there's actually physiological impact of it and there's concentration impact of it. So the first thing I'd do to up our productivity, so to speak, and enjoyment and work is to reduce the work week. Right. Um, I'm a big fan of the four-day week. In fact, I'm a big fan of the three-day week or maybe just the three-hour day. Um, and I tend to think that we work much better in small focused bursts because we're engaged with that. And also we need that diversity of experience, which is why, again, so many of us will spend, you know, certainly during my days um, commuting into London, I'd leave at six, six in the morning from Cambridge and be back home at nine at night. And I'd still need to go and play a game of squash in the evening just to balance everything out. And I think we can compress a lot more into organizing our time better. And obviously that has implications in terms of how we organize how we work. And this is why, again, I think one of the interesting revelations from COVID is the fact that we're all engaging in Zoom. And actually, we can do a lot more of the work. I mean, we all certainly want to go back to the office at some point. But we've now learned that actually a lot of what we used to think we had to go in for, we can do actually at home. And that gives us time to do other things. Right. The book tells the story of the employees at the Kellogg Company, who at one point were given a 30-hour work week, and it apparently was quite successful. The company did a great job of increasing the business. Uh, but then the employees themselves, I take it, I wasn't familiar with the story until I read it. The employees themselves voted to go back to a 40-hour work week. Yes. It, was it purely because they wanted to make more money and acquire more stuff? Or is there, was there any other explanation that we look to in that well, story? Well, there, there was. It, it's an interesting story. Um, and you, you're right. One of the first things they said was they wanted to take home a little more um, salaries. The second reason they said, and this, of course, was a fairly male-dominated workforce at the time, was they said they got frustrated by being being <laughs> stuck at home with their, their, their wives. <laughs> so... Yes. So that was, you know, I, I think in the sort of it was was the fifties, and uh, I think it was probably quite quite fraught. People weren't as used to being at home as we are, as and we are now. Was, their work was more part of their social life, perhaps then, well, to their social uh, life. And this is indeed. So the other side of that story is that in really in the twentieth century. For many people, and in particular in the early part of twentieth century, it was a very male-dominated thing. The office and the workplace functioned in many ways like a surrogate village. You know, I remember certainly my boss at De Beers telling me when I joined in as an anthropologist, in case I had any illusions, he said, you're going to be spending a lot more time um, with your colleagues here than you are with your family. And in a sense, that is what builds workforces into coherent communities. But at the same time, it does come with certain costs in terms of what happens at home. So there's certainly that was a, a, a thing that affected the Kellogg's company. But as you said, you know, the main reason I actually think was cash. Um, right. And I, again, I, this is sort of another big theme in my book is, you know, what is it that motivates us to work for riches that we no longer need? Um, and so it's really looking at sort of bigger macroeconomic questions, which is, again, where I think some of the solutions to the problems of work come. I think of people who work in two jobs and have very little to take home. 
Um, and the reason they're working long hours is very different to the person who's got a high-flying executive um, position and making an awful lot of money and enjoying the power that they may wield. So there, there are broader issues too. Um, part of the, you know, let, let me try out a theory that I had, which I've actually had for a little while and, and which came to the fore when I was reading the book. You use the metaphor of, of uh, or the example, and then it becomes a metaphor of the, the masked weaver bird, which is a bird that builds nests and then destroys nests. It has this compulsion, it seems, to engage in activity all the time. Um, and I think there's a way in which the economy that we have now and the business organizations we have now reward constant busyness. And I think you make this, this observation too. And I also think that the way that organizations reward constant busyness tends to result in, in a phenomenon in which the busiest people are those who are promoted into supervisory positions yes. and their, their patterns of behavior become their expectations for others. Yes, indeed. And it, uh, is that, uh, does that sort of uh, bind us into this pattern or is there, is there a way that we can break out of it and say, look, it really would be better if we all worked a little bit less, we'd actually be more productive, we'd be happier. Um, how, do, how, do we, how do we change that? conversation, I guess. Well, as, as you say, I mean, part of the problem is, is that, you know, we're cultural creatures and institutions reproduce themselves. As you say, you know, one senior manager will pass on their habits and ways of doing things to the senior manager they promote below them and so on. Right. Um, so businesses are reproductive organs. They actually, when we talk about business having a culture, it does have a culture that reproduces admittedly at a faster rate than our cultures, but it does, it does have a culture. Um, and in a sense, I think because of the hierarchical way that most businesses are organized, and certainly not all, there's certainly some alternatives um, happening, certainly in local, local in Cambridge that I'm, I'm aware of, but most businesses are highly hierarchical, and that requires change to happen at the top. Um, so generally, you're going to have a change in culture. We certainly saw that when we saw, um, you know, I, I suppose this century's secondary, the social media tech boom, where you saw a whole lot of business cultures started mainly by young entrepreneurs, um, you know, yeah. with sort of West Coast feel, and they tried to create very different sets of cultures, whether that's worked or, worked or not. Um, but yes, I think ultimately change in this area, unless we reorganize the way we organize our companies, it needs to come from the top. Um, but again, as I say, I think one need not limit one's thinking to simply persuading a CEO um, that, you know, maybe perhaps people should work less or work differently or work better. One can actually organize companies in different ways. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so that's a good opportunity to ask um, maybe what, what might serve as a summary question, which is what's your hope for what readers take away from the book? Um, thinking about all the things that we've discussed? Well, as I said, I, I, I'm not a person who feels that I have the answers to anything, but I do think that I'll help people. And I certainly hope I'll ask, get people to ask better questions about the way they work, about their motivations for work, and about um, why we work the way we do. So really, my, my principal aim in this book was to really persuade us. You mentioned earlier that there are many things that we just assume are human nature. Um, and the principal aim in the book really was to persuade us 
that actually we're not hostages to what we think of as nature. And we can be far more imaginative when we ask ourselves, how are we going to make the best use of the extraordinary prosperity that we have won ourselves over the last century and a half of hard work? How do we make the best possible use of that? Um, and really avoid problems that are simply legacies from what is an increasingly archaic set of values and ideas about how hard we should be working. Um, so it's, it's really to open people's minds a little bit so that they can maybe come up with great ideas how to, how to change things. And that's great it, to open people's minds to the fact that not always are your surroundings natural and what, uh, what might have been, they, they're not uh, inevitable and that human beings are flex, uh, flexible and adaptable, um, which I think is another uh, a lesson to take away and actually something that a lot of our other guests um, have emphasized as well. And that uh, maintaining an open mind about one's circumstances uh, is often the most important first step in any kind of positive development with respect to work, which is such an important role in all of our lives. Jody. I just want to thank you for joining us today. Um, that was fantastic and fascinating. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you? Um, can we contact you. They, they can. Yes, they can indeed. They can go through the magic of Google, um, and I've got one. One website is for my consultancy company, but another website is related to my book stuff, and that's called quite simply www.fromthebush.com. <laughs> Great. Uh, be sure to check out James's new book, Work, A Deep History, From the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. I'm Jody Foster, along with my co-host, Sean Burke, and you're listening to Help Wanted on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 